The uh, scripture reading today comes from Matthew 6, 9 to 15. It's also printed on page 8 of your bulletin. I'm going to read that for us this morning. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Amen. Glory to the Lord. Uh, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Metro. Uh, last week, we started a new mini-sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and I have the privilege of continuing on in that. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with uh, some of my coworkers at work, and uh, the conversation was about uh, faith, what they believed, the Bible, and to be honest, it wasn't anything super deep. It was a very casual conversation, and uh, one guy's in their mid-30s, the other guy's in their upper 40s, and um, they both have a family. They both attend church regularly. So I asked them, I asked one of them, would you consider yourself religious? And he said, not really religious, but spiritual. I'd consider myself spiritual. And uh, the other guy agreed as well. And I thought this was really interesting because in our society today, if you would ask some of your coworkers that same question, I'm sure they would respond the same way, that they were spiritual. Some of you here might also think that as well. Not religious, but spiritual. And I don't have time to unpack the meaning of this, but a big part of this spirituality is prayer. Whether you consider yourself religious, spiritual, an atheist, everyone has at least prayed once in their lifetime. People often, uh, they pray in difficult situations, it's tragic times. Um, and um, even those people who don't consider themselves religious, what do they say in response when someone's going through a hard time? I'll lift up prayers for you. My prayers are with you. I pray for you. Or some variation of that. But the question is, in all of this, who are you praying to? Who's listening? Because if no one's listening, what good is prayer? You might be just sending good vibes someone's way, whatever that means. In our passage today, Jesus talks about the importance of prayer in the Christian life. And last week, we took a 30,000-foot view of our passage today. And today, I have the privilege of speaking on the first four words of this prayer. Our Father in heaven. And I have three points for us today. The mission of the Father, the power of the Father, and the access to the Father. The mission of the Father is going to cover our uh, power of the Father, it's going to cover in heaven, and access to the Father covers Father, our Father in heaven. So the first point, mission of the Father, our. Now the first word uh, of what we call the Lord's Prayer is our, and Jesus could have easily said anything else. He could have said, my Father. He could have said, your Father. He could have said, loving Father. Or he even could have said, heavenly Father. All these things would have been true, but he didn't say those things. He said, our Father. Why? The reason for that is because in light of who he is and who we are, God calls us into community 
and to be on mission. We are all radically relational people. We see that in the midst of utter isolation. When we're by ourselves for too long, you see these POWs, some of them go crazy. Some of us go crazy being in a room for a day. We start talking to ourselves. We need to talk to other people. We need to be relational. And that's because this is how we're designed to be. We need relationships. Some of us more than others, but all of us to a certain extent. And the way in which God shapes us as individuals is through relationships, specifically in the context of the church. This is why we belong to, uh, this is why belonging to a church is essential, completely essential. It's not supplementary, it is essential to the Christian life. The uh, prevailing thought today is that an individual can mature as a Christian without the church. And a big part of the church is individual, but just as big, if not bigger, is communal. In faith, we need a community. And I know that a huge chunk of us here are probably sitting here thinking, you know, the church is actually the problem with Christianity. That's the reason why I left the church. How do I know that? It's because most of the people who walk through the doors of Metro are those who left the church because there was deep hurt, there was pain, there was suffering and scars from the past experiences. But I want to ask that you would hear me out. I want to re-represent to you what the church is supposed to be as God designed it. It isn't supposed to be, as we heard last week, a country club of Christians huddled together judging those who haven't paid their dues by not coming out consistently, by not reading the Bible, by not praying constantly. It's not supposed to be a museum of saints, people walking around like wax dolls, just looking real perfect. That's not what the church is supposed to be. It's designed to be a place on mission. Mission to go to those who are hurting in pain, those with deep scars. It's designed to be a community of broken people who move towards others who are broken. It's designed to be a community of people who are aware, who are honest, and who are open with their marital, their financial, their relational, their parental problems in their lives. At Metro, one of our core values is community dependence, and we hear that all the time. But community dependence is, not, is, is more than finding people to hang out with or just the feeling of belonging to a group. You can find that anywhere in the world. But in the context of church, it's dependence upon community to identify your brokenness and lead you to new life in the gospel. That's what community dependence means. Before I got married, I thought of myself as a pretty, uh, pretty awesome guy. I was cool. I was hip, I was cool, did I mention I was cool? But after I've been married for six years, I've come to the realization of how awful, how selfish of a person I truly am. And, I, and, my, and my, love, my, my wife loves to give credit to herself for me coming to that realization. And I think all of us husbands here, we can probably say the same thing if we really, really look deep inside. I'm sure wives are like inside, at least inside, they're nodding their heads like, yes, amen, amen. But you guys are sinners too. You guys, we're all sinners. I'm not saying you have to get married in order to come to this realization. Even those who are married, we need other people. In fact, those people who are married 
probably need people more than those who are individual. What I'm, and what I'm not saying is that you need certain things. But what I am saying is without these people in your life who know you, who can speak into truth into your life, there will be no growth, very little maturity or development in your gospel character. In fact, you're taking the easy way out. One Christian author said it like this, Our lives are like castles, and the only time we let our drawbridge down is on Sunday mornings for two hours, then once we leave the building, we shut it closed until next Sunday. And don't we live our lives like this? We come to church, we let our drawbridges down, we do our due diligence, we, che- we talk to some people, we check off the box for the week, then when we leave the building, we close up shop and go back to our normal lives. Friends, if you believe that this is the church, you're very mistaken. You're literally just going to a building and walking out. The Father calls us not to simply just go to church. He calls us to be the church. Let me explain. The church is not a building. The church is not a place. Rather, the church is a community of desperately broken people living in light and constantly being reminded of the good news of Jesus. And the truth is, you need the church more than the church probably needs you. So it's critical to let your drawbridge down and let people cross into your life. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates here, it represents the power of sin and darkness that we often see manifested in the world that we live around us constantly. But what was Jesus' resolution against all of this? The church. And not just the church but a church on the mission of the Father to usher in broken people, hurting people, humbled people, and to bring them new life and healing in the gospel to them. There's a profound humility because whether you've been to church all your life or whether you've just started coming back to church, the reality is that we are just as desperately in need of the gospel as that person sitting right next to us. The Father calls us to a life of community and mission. The second point, power of the Father in heaven. Again, let's start with what Jesus didn't say in this passage. He didn't say, our Father on earth, or our Father in our hearts, or our Father who is gracious, or simply our Father. Again, all those things are true, but he said, our Father in heaven. And I mentioned that whether people consider themselves religious, irreligious, spiritual, people feel the need to pray, especially and most often in times of crisis. Why? Because in these moments of crisis, we feel utterly powerless. In the face of cancer, addictions, eating disorders, a natural disaster, or even betrayal, we realize just how weak frail and powerless we really are. In those moments, what else can we do but pray and hope that someone who is greater is listening to us, someone who is all-powerful? Jesus explains that when Christians pray, it is not only to a Father, but it is a Father in heaven, a Father who is seated on the throne of the universe, the one who created all things, who is all-wise, who is all-powerful, 
who is king. You know, it's wonderful uh, that the number of children at Metro have been growing so much in the past year. I remember as a kid, and I'm sure some of you do too, at school during recess, um, there would always be a little group of kids arguing about whose dad was the strongest, right? It gets heated. These kids really want to prove that their dad is the strongest. It's the one dad to rule them all, like the Lord of the Rings. But how sad would it be if you heard this conversation? My daddy's the strongest. No, my dad's the strongest. No, my dad's the strongest. And one kid says, yeah, my dad's not that strong. How sad would that? I don't know who's kid. That's not my kid. My kid better think that I'm strong. I'm going to be depressed for life. You wouldn't have any confidence to approach your father if he is not all-powerful, all if he has no ability to do anything, if he is not king. How can you go to him knowing that what you ask will be heard? Jesus tells us to pray to our Father who is in heaven. He is able to do all things because he is king. And we can confidently say that my daddy truly is the strongest. Not only is he the strongest, he is all wise. He is all knowing. And so often we approach God with our prayers. When we approach God with our prayers, it becomes about things. It, comes about, it becomes about circumstances. We want this job. We want this promotion. We want this girl. We want this guy. We want a kid. We want a girl or a guy as a kid. There's so many things that we ask them. But when these things don't happen, we become bitter and angry. And when we do, we forget how we forget that God is not, all, is not all, just all-powerful, but He is all-wise and all-loving. An all-powerful God who does not give all that we ask, although He is fully capable, means that in His wisdom, He is withholding these things that may not be for our ultimate good. Our Father in heaven. We have a Father who is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is King. That leads us to our last point. And I know y'all are getting really excited because it's only been 15 minutes, but this is the most important part of the sermon. It's going to be a little longer than 15 minutes, sorry. Access to the Father. Father. The basis of this entire prayer hinges on that word, Father. There was a post uh, on Reddit that asked, how is your relationship with your Father? And Reddit is, if, if you don't know what Reddit is, it's, a, um, it's like a, uh, uh, a forum where people are anonymous and you can be completely honest with your thoughts. One, one person said, he's my favorite person in the world. Another, I got lucky. He has instilled in me my hard work ethic. He supported me throughout life despite me being a bleepity bleep kid sometimes. He's one of the, he's one of the people I look up to most. But others, he's just casual in my life in a weird, when he has time way. Honestly, if it wasn't for my daughter, we, I doubt we'd talk. Or another, non-existent. He lives halfway across the world with a, another family and hasn't kept in touch. Or lastly, he died when I was 10. It was fine before that. I miss him. Some of these comments were heartwarming, while most of them were heartbreaking. 
The one thing that we see from these comments is that a crucial part of relationships is access. And access really shapes the way that we approach these relationships. The word father means a lot of different things to different people. That's what that post really shows us. According to our passage, Jesus explains that there are two basic ways that we approach God. In fact, there are probably two general ways that we approach any of our relationships as a whole. One, on the one hand, it's as a business relationship, and on the other, it's as a family relationship. And of course, there are are exceptions, there are varying degrees of this, but by and large, I think these two categories hold much truer than you might think. Let me explain. In a business relationship, there are a transaction of goods and services. At work, your relationship with your manager or boss hinges on your performance. It's conditional. If you perform well, you get to keep your job and you get a paycheck. However, the condition is that if and when you make a a mistake, a huge mistake, a small one or a big one, or you make the same mistake repeatedly, or you aren't able to perform your work to the level of standard that you are supposed to, eventually you'll be let go. You'll get fired. That's the condition of the relationship, and that's what makes it a business relationship. There isn't much commitment involved. Many of our relationships fall into this category, whether it be as casual as a waiter at a restaurant. When they do well, you give them 20% tip, 25% tip, whatever it might be. If they do bad, you leave them no tip. I'm just kidding, you gotta leave some kind of tip, at least 10 or 15. However, it also extends to those who are a little more intimate, our friendships. Think about it. How many friends have you had over your lifetime? So much of it is like a carousel. People coming in and out of your lives, and there are many conditions to our friendships. Once certain friends no longer bring any value to our lives, we cut them off. If friends are disloyal, we cut them off. Even if they move out of town and it becomes difficult for them to keep in touch, you eventually lose touch. There is a sense of performance that you have to maintain even in friendships. On the other hand, there's family relationships. Whether your family member performs well or not, they continually be, they're, they're continually your family. While you have the option of saying to a friend, this guy is no longer my friend, you can't really say, this guy is no longer my brother. Whether, uh, you don't have the option of, of changing those things. There's a sense of commitment and unconditionality to it. Where a business relationship is about what you do, family relationships is about who you are. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, puts it like this. When you live in somebody else's house, you either occupy it in two ways either as a boarder or someone who rents, or as a family member or a child. A boarder can occupy the the house as long as he pays rent and he follows the rules. But when rent isn't paid in time or not paid at all, eventually you're going to get kicked out. Whereas a child can occupy the house even if he doesn't pay rent, simply by who he is. Even when he disobeys the rules, he's not evicted from his house. He might be disciplined, but he's not going to get kicked out of the house. In light of this, when we approach God, we come to him in the same way. We either come to him as a boarder or as a child. And here's how you can tell uh, what what you are in the context of prayer. 
Looking at verse 7, it's not in your passage, but let me read this uh, for us. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. That word babbling means empty. So you're saying, you're saying words, but they don't mean anything. And when Jesus here talks about pagans, he's not talking about the non-religious people. He's talking about those people who go to church. He's talking about the religious people, those people who focus on morality and belief. That's what he's referring to when he says pagans. But here he says, don't pray like them. Don't pray like the religious people. He's saying that these religious people are living like boarders, like renters. When boarders pray, it's cold. It's impersonal. Why? Because it's simply out of duty. It's mechanical. Or in other words, their relationship with God is purely business. They do their duty, and you expect something in return. More specifically, how can you tell if your relationship with God is a business one? Uh, one way to tell is that when your prayer goes unanswered, what happens when your prayers are unanswered? You either become anxious or you become angry and cold. When you become cold, it's because you're thinking, God, I've been paying my rent. I've been holding my end of the bargain. I've been going to church. I've been reading the Bible. But God, you're not holding your end of the bargain. Or if you become anxious, you don't feel as though yet you've been paying rent. You haven't been going to church consistently. You haven't been reading the Bible consistently. You feel guilty. When these things, and when things aren't going well in your life, you feel like God is punishing you because you haven't been holding your uh, end of the bargain up. You, you feel anxious. When you pray, is your prayers constantly filled with guilt and shame? God, I know I haven't been doing this. I'm sorry, but I'll try harder. I'll try harder. I know I'm a failure, but I'll try harder. This is a border's approach to prayer. However, the prayers of a Christian are much different because you approach God not as a transaction, but as a father-child relationship. Christian prayers are warm. They're loving. They're personal. They're confident. A Christian comes to God not based on what you've done, but based on who you are. Your approach to God is that of a father, not of a landlord. A Christian is adopted into a family of God. You know, one of the most radical things a couple or any person can do is adopt a child. And the idea of adoption is when a family chooses to bring in a child who has nothing, who probably wasn't even wanted in the first place, brings them in from the outside and brings them into their family and says to that child, I love you. You are mine and all that I have is yours. It's saying that I promise to provide you with all the love and commitment that I would my natural child. Now there's a level of intimacy and access to his parents that this child never had before. You know, living as an orphan, a child who once did not have a father or parents at all now has access to him unlike any other person in the world. The only one who has the ability to wake up a sleeping father for a cup of water in the middle of the night 
is his own child. He's not getting up for anybody else. Not even his own wife. Trust me. I know. I've been there. For that child, adoption isn't a change in behavior. It's a change in status. It's now the identity of that child. It's who he is. It's who she is. By Jesus leading us to pray, Our Father, this is what he is saying. He's saying, Now you are a child of the Father. And because of who you are, your identity as a child, your Father will take the time to listen to you. He's not going to send you back if you misbehave. You're going to stay in the house regardless of if you misbehave or not. The Father will certainly discipline you out of love, as any good father would, but you still remain dearly loved and cherished. Do you see the difference between a border and a child, a religious person and a child of God, a Christian? Your approach to God is radically different. As a border, you obey in order to be accepted. As a child, you're accepted. Therefore, you obey. In adoption, it's the parents who choose the child. It's not the child asking and, and, and pointing out who's going to adopt them. It's purely on the father or the mother to adopt this child. The child might not even know what's going on. Looking at your prayer life and the way that you approach God, I'm going to ask you, are you a boarder or are you a child? Do you enjoy spending time with your Heavenly Father or is it a chore? Are your prayers cold, mechanical, impersonal, or are they filled with warmth, joy, one that is deeply personal? There's a big difference between the way that you would text message your boss and your friend. With your boss, you're trying to be as formal and as professional as possible, almost impersonal. I hate it when people text me, friends text me, like I'm some boss or someone who they, they don't know. Justin, Dash, how are you? Question mark. Hope you're doing well. Regards, period. I hate that. However, with a close friend, what are you doing? You're throwing out emojis, gifs, a million exclamation marks. There's warmth. There's joy. Friends, are you afraid to pray because you feel like you have to sound a certain way? Or you have to say certain things? And you're afraid to do it wrong. That's a border's approach to prayer. It's based on performance rather than your status and your relationship. Have you ever heard a toddler try to say anything when they first start saying something? It takes them forever to say whatever they want to because they repeat the same things over and over. It happened in the car on the way here. And then, and then, and then, and then we did and then, and then, it's like, come out with it, man. It's funny, but as a, as a parent, you're clinging on to every word that they're saying. Especially when they're just learning to speak. In fact, you're amazed at how much your child has grown to even say those things. There's a deep sense of endearment simply because they're your child. In that same way, the Father hears your prayers and finds joy in hearing your voice regardless of how articulate it might be. In fact, the prayers of the Pharisees, they were beautiful. 
They were elegant. They had so much in them, yet what did Jesus say? They were empty. They meant nothing. Why? Because they looked to God as a border, not as a child of God. Do you see the difference between these two approaches? As a border, again, you're looking to perform or impress, and eventually you're going to get tired. You'll get anxious every time you approach God. Did I do this right? Did I do this right? However, as a child, there is freedom. There is joy and dependence in spending time with your father. In light of this, the question is, how is this all made possible to us? How is it that the Father, the King, the Creator of the universe wants to bring in such broken and disobedient children into His family? How do we have this access to our Father? Where did it come from? In our passage, it is Jesus who is teaching the disciples to pray, Our Father. It is Jesus leading the disciples not to pray like the religious, as borders, but as children of God. In other words, John 3.16, a very popular passage that many of us know here. Whether you've been to going church or not, you probably know this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus is the Father's one and only son, yet he is inviting us to also call him Father, to become sons just like him. This term is called sonship. And this isn't Jesus limiting his invitation to only men and boys, but in ancient times, it's the oldest son, not the daughter, who received the inheritance and the blessing of the father. So here, Jesus is inviting both men and women to receive the status of the oldest child, just as you are the oldest son. Whether you're a guy or a girl, you receive all the blessings of the one and only son, Jesus Christ himself. The way he invites us uh, to take on the status was by himself laying it down. For God so loved the world that he gave up his one and only son. Philippians 4 tells us, although he had everything, God made himself nothing and became a servant. Jesus had every right to keep his status as the one and only son for himself to receive the inheritance and blessing of the Father. In fact, it was this way since the beginning of time. Their relationship as father and son was the basis of all the intimate relationships that we have in our lives. And can you imagine looking at the most intimate relationships that we have, if that is just the shadow of the relationship that, the, that God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, had? How deep, how rich, how intimate was that relationship? Yet we see in the Gospels that this is not the reason why Jesus came. His mission was to carry out the Father's mission. And as we saw in the first point, the Father's mission was to usher in those who are broken, humbled, hurting, to bring them new life and healing. Shortly before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet... Not as I will, but as you will. What he's saying when he says, not as I will, but as you will, is that Jesus is laying down his rights to his inheritance, to the blessing of the Father. And in obedience to the Father, he followed the mission to the end. This cup that he was to drink 
was the cup of the Father's wrath built up due to our disobedience to Him as King. Just as any righteous king would, those living in disobedience, when you don't follow the law, you get killed. You're put to death. Yet in Jesus' obedience, he drank the cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of sonship and adoption. When he was nailed to the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the only time recorded in the Gospels where Jesus did not call God his Father. Why? Because in his moment of greatest need, when he was crying out to the Father, I need you, the Father turned his face away. When a child in pain cries out to his father and mother, help me, I need you, where are you? How can a father not run to his own child in reckless abandon to rescue in suffering and in pain? Can you imagine the agony, the torment of a father or a mother who has to turn away from his son in his moment of greatest need? As a father, honestly, I would do anything to run to my son even at the cost of other people. Yet the father turned his face away from his one and only son in order that through his sacrifice, he would not just have one son, but he would have many. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned by his father, yet till the very end, he carried out the mission of the father. What did he do? On the cross, he prayed for the very ones who was crucifying him on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even to the very end, he was carrying out the mission of the Father in obedience. Jesus lived the perfect, obedient life that we should have lived and died the criminal's death that we should have died. Through his sacrifice, we now have access to, the, to our heavenly Father, our all-powerful, our all-wise and loving King. Let me end by saying this. Jesus says to go to him not as a boarder, not as a renter, but as a child. Enjoy the Father. Trust the Father. Pray to the Father, knowing that he is listening and he hears every single word. Not a word that you pray drops to the ground. He hears every single one, not because you've held your end of the bargain, but simply because he delights in you as his child. Let's pray.